0: comes from romans chapter 9 i will read verses 20 through 24 romans chapter 9 verse 20 through 24 hear the word of old back to god will what is molded say to its molder why have you made me like this Even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews only, but from also from the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you be present with us in the proclamation of your word. We ask that you would uh, teach us what it is that you would have us know. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can you pull me back a little bit there? I'm kind of freaking out up here. So this year's theme verse in the uh, chapel at Valley Christian School is Matthew twenty two thirty seven, which uh, uh, is Jesus, and he's quoting Deuteronomy six nine, and Jesus says, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind." Heart, soul, and Mind. Heartfelt worship, we all know what that looks like. Soulful worship, that makes sense to us. But what about our minds? Do we bring our minds to worship? Do we come to worship expecting to think? Or do we prefer a worship experience that engages our senses and our emotions but leaves our brains free to idle and neutral? After all, it's the weekend. We want to take it easy on ourselves. According to Jesus, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with your heart and with your soul and with your mind. And that means that we do not please God when we are lazy thinkers. That means that we do not live into God's design for us when we are sloppy with our reason. Now, if you've been around Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church for a while, you know that we are a congregation not afraid to bring our brains to church. Some of you who go to the adult Sunday school might feel like you're in a seminary class. Too often, people make a false distinction between the heart and the head as if you have to be heartless in order to have a head on your shoulders. Or that you have to be brainless in order to have any emotional intelligence. It's a false distinction. Here at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church, we want to encourage you. We want to cultivate in worship uh, a warm heart and alert minds. We want to love God with our whole heart, soul, and mind. And that means we come to worship with caffeinated brains. Ready? Ready? An alert, thinking sharply, and that means we come into worship with humble and receptive spirits, unafraid to respond emotionally to God's words. That means we come to worship submissive to God's will, which brings me to a little sidebar. If you'll indulge me for just a moment. We've had this conversation around here a number of times. I had it this past week with Sam Samuel. I feel like I've been talking to a brick wall sometimes because we keep bringing this issue up, but let me say it again. If you feel led by the Holy Spirit to shout amen while the pastor is preaching, we will not revoke your Presbyterian membership. And the ushers will not escort you out of the sanctuary and point you to the Baptist church across the street. We won't do that. If you raise your hands in praise while you're singing, we won't throw you out of the congregation. And no one will ask if maybe you showed up at the wrong church this morning. We won't do that. I can't tell you how many times I've had people say to me, people from both services can't tell you how many times I've had people say to me, Pastor, I really wanted to say amen today. And I'm thinking, well, why didn't you? Because while it's a downer for you to quash your spiritual joy in worship, it's also no fun for me to preach to a brick wall. So do both of us a favor and let it rip when the spirit moves. Churches are funny places. Church people are funny people. And there's something stubbornly mysterious about church culture. Each church, of course, is different. Each church has its own personality. You can go to a shouting church. A church where people feel the freedom to give vent to their passions, even while their brains are engaged in listening to the sermon. You can go to a shouting church switch out their regular preacher, and stick in the world's most boring guy. And you know what happens? They keep on shouting. And you know why? Because they came to church anticipating that they would hear from Almighty God. They came excited at the prospect that the Word of God would be proclaimed, and they came to church knowing that it's a safe place to give vent to the powerful emotions that a word from God will cause in any living person. Now, on the other hand, you can go to a stony church. You can go to a church where people are embarrassed by their religious affections. You can go to a church like that and give the regular preacher the heave-ho. And you can stick in as, you know, the B-stringer Jesus or Paul or or Jonathan Edwards or John Wesley into the pulpit and they will just stare at him blankly the way that they stare at CNN on a monitor in an airport lobby. Now they might think to themselves, hey, that's Jesus, how about that? But the pathways of their religious affections are so clogged and hardened that they can't give vent to what's healthy. They can't give vent to what in fact is commanded in scripture. So how is it that so many people can come up to me and say, Pastor, I really wanted to say amen today. And again, this is a two service problem. And yet, silence prevails in this sanctuary. Well, it's very simple. You're sheep. And it's called compliance. When you go to a new church, it's a very intimidating experience. You don't want to do things the wrong way. You don't want to stand out. And so you look around very carefully to see how people are behaving and you copy them. And so when new people come to this church, they look around themselves and they say, this ain't a shouting church. I better behave myself. And they do, even though they don't want to. And then the next week, another new family comes and sits behind the family that came for the first time last week. The family that wanted to say amen last week but figured it was against the Presbyterian rules. And then the brand new family observes this almost new family and they think to themselves, Well, I heard that this preacher preaches hellfire, but it seems like everyone here is very cool. So I better behave myself. And so it goes. And each new wave of members learns from the previous wave to behave in a way that no one really wants. It's strange. I have a theory, unverified, but probably true. A theory that it all began back in 1956 when one dyspeptic sourpuss gave the stink eye one Sunday morning to a certain over-exuberant worshiper... Who then froze in his tracks with an amen half out of his mouth. And then each new wave of families coming to the church learned how to behave from those who were already here. Folks, it's not good. It's not good that we are commanded to love God with our whole heart and our whole soul and our whole mind. And I don't think that we can do that without... Little explosions of joy and outbursts of affirmation and affection. Truth be told, we love the Philadelphia Eagles more than we love God judging from how we react to a good play and how we react to a good word. So here's my encouragement to you. Loosen up! Okay? You can pretend for a while. Okay? You can just pretend. Do some stretching exercises before you come to church so you won't pull a muscle in your face in case you smile. Alright, that's the sidebar. Now let me preach. What I want to talk about this morning is how authentic biblical worship involves heart, soul, and mind. Authentic biblical worship will engage your emotions your affections, that is the, the movement of your will, and your intellect. Don't let any puts a stamp in your worship. Feel free to talk back to the preacher if the spirit moves, and make sure that your brain is also awake so that you can listen well and think clearly about the amazing stuff that God has to reveal to us this morning. But what does this have to do with our reading from Romans? It has to do with how we use our Minds in worship. In our two readings, we had two very different uses of the mind. I hope you picked this up. Very, two very different uses of human reason illustrated and then two very different responses from Almighty God. Both readings presented rational, intellectual challenges to the justice of God. In Genesis, Abraham is upset. Because God has announced his plan to destroy Sodom where Abraham's nephew Lot lives with his wife and his daughters. And Abraham says to God, shall not the judge of the world do what is just? Abraham thinks it's unfair that righteous people should perish alongside of unrighteous people. And naturally enough, Abraham assumes that his nephew Lot is among the righteous. Even while he's willing to admit that maybe some of those other people in Sodom are unrighteous. Is it? Not unfair to destroy the whole city if some of the people are not guilty. In Romans, Paul responds to the accusation of the people who ask, is there not injustice on God's part by saving some people and not saving others? Is there not injustice on God's part in making some clay vessels for honorable purposes and other clay vessels for dishonorable use? Both questions... The question in Genesis and the question in Romans, both questions are products of human reason, of our minds. And the purpose of this first part of the sermon was to say that human reason is important, that it has a place in our worship life. God has given us reason and we should use it to understand God better. God doesn't make us smart just so that we can be dumb when we come to church. I, for one, do not believe, by the way, this is something that the church is going to have to wrestle with pretty soon. I'm just giving you a first warning now. I, for one, do not believe that faith and reason are opposed. I do not believe that there is a conflict between being a Christian and being a philosopher or being a scientist. We probably need to talk a little bit more about this uh, this coming year, but I'm just telling you where I'm going to be raising this subject. Let me say briefly that faith concerns things that are beyond reason or beneath the domain of reason, but faith is not contrary to reason. In the same way that calculus is beyond algebra, but not contrary to algebra, faith is beyond reason, but not contrary to reason. In the same way that number theory is beneath arithmetic, Faith is beneath reason, but not contrary to it. Faith and reason both grasp truth, but they grasp different domains of truth. And if you ever find yourself in a situation where it seems that faith and reason are at odds, that they're coming up with contrary statements, then you're probably using reason to do what it was never designed to do, or you're applying faith to matters that are not matters of faith. So, as your pastor, I want to encourage you to be smart. I want encourage you to engage your reason to study the world, to study the word of God. And I encourage you to bring your whole heart, soul, and mind into your religious life. But be careful. These two questions, one presented in Genesis and one presented in Romans, both come out of human reason. But God's reaction to them is radically different. We need to think about how we use our reason, our minds, in the right way, in a way that God approves. In the case of Abraham's question, which turns into this long drawn out negotiation with God, you probably are familiar with that passage, we shortened it uh, in our reading this morning, but Abraham keeps coming back to God. He keeps coming back again and again, negotiating him down from, well, you know, if there are 50 righteous people, well, how about 40? And he gets him down to about 10. In the case of Abraham's question, God is clearly willing to engage Abraham in this discussion. But in the case of the question that Paul mentions, and it's not Paul's question, but it's a question that's being raised by people that Paul gives voice to, in the case of the question that Paul mentions, scripture's answer is very abrupt and very dismissive. Who are you, O mortal, to answer back to God? Okay? Two very different kinds of responses from Almighty God regarding human reason. If human reason is permitted in our dealings with God, if God in fact commands us To love Him with our whole heart, soul, and mind. Why is God's reaction so different in these two cases? Well, the answer comes back to the heart. Yes, the answer about the use of the mind comes back to the heart, which is the seat of our attitudes and our motivations. We can have very different attitudes and very different motivations when we use human reason. When we ask questions. In Abraham's case, God accepts Abraham's attitude and motivation. And God is willing to engage him in this conversation. But in the case of the question that Paul mentions, the attitude and the motivation behind that question is very different. And God simply tells the questioner, shut up. So let's talk about these attitudes and the motivation behind godly thinking. When Abraham approaches God, his attitude has three features. Number one, trust and faith in God. Number two, a reverent fear of God. And number three, an acknowledgement of the essential goodness of God. Let me go through these one by one. First, godly thinking displays trust and faith in God. Abraham asked God to spare Sodom because Abraham trusts God. Because Abraham has faith in God. Abraham trusts God to hear and to respond to his prayers. He has faith that God is able to do what he's asking. Abraham wants God to change his mind and not destroy Sodom. Abraham has a vested interest in Sodom. He's got some family there. And so he talks to God about this in trust and in faith. God, would you please be willing to spare this city if there are some righteous people there? God has already said the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. But Abraham hopes that God will spare this city because of a few people who are not as sinful as the rest. He's asking a favor. The ease with which... Abraham approaches God with this request, demonstrates his trust in God, demonstrates God's willingness to hear, demonstrates his trust in God's fundamental goodness. Godly thinking begins with trust and faith in God. Secondly, godly thinking displays a reverent fear of God. Though he really pesters God, Abraham's questions of God are marked by a reverent fear. Now most people these days, or many people these days, think that the very idea of the fear of God is wrong and primitive. That God shouldn't be fearsome. That God should be safe and tame like a kindly uncle or like a cuddly Santa Claus. But but the biblical view, which is the correct view, the biblical view is that God is terrifyingly powerful. That God is completely beyond us. That God is frightfully holy. And not someone to be toyed with. As Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fearful thing. He's got the whole world in his hands. It's a fearful thing. God is good. That's for sure. But don't mess with him. Abraham approaches God carefully with fear and with reverence, as he repeatedly presses his case, Abraham says, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. Abraham is trying to drive a hard bargain. But he has the good sense to know that he might cross the line and push God too far and he doesn't want to do that. Godly thinking displays a reverent fear of Almighty God. And third, godly thinking presupposes the essential goodness of God. Though God has said that he would destroy Sodom, Abraham wants Sodom spared. Abraham never suggests that God's plan might be wrong or evil. Instead, Abraham pleads with God by appealing to God's own justice. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Abraham assumes that God is good. Abraham seeks to understand God's purposes more clearly, and Abraham appeals to God's own good nature as a motivation for why God should grant Abraham's request. When we approach God in faith and in trust, when we approach God with a reverent fear, when we acknowledge the essential goodness of God, then God will talk with us as long as we need. Faithful Christians can have real questions for God and I think God is happy to hear those questions and I don't think anyone in church leadership should ever fear tough and probing questions from faithful Christians. If your desire is to understand God more clearly, If your desire is to have God grant your request, then ask away and keep asking. The Holy Scriptures are God's final and authoritative revelation until Jesus returns in glory. We don't need to be asking for new revelations to go beyond what the Bible already says. But in the 2,000 years since the last of the New Testament was written... The church has understood God's truth more and more fully. Calvin understood the atonement more fully than St. Augustine did. And that's the result of faithful Christians putting on their thinking caps and digging into the treasure chest of Scripture to discover more and more of the riches that are right there on the pages of the Bible. I encourage all of you to bring your... Questions to God to bring them in faith and in trust and in reverent fear, acknowledging that God is good through and through. I know that there are some Christians who get nervous when people ask hard questions, but I believe if the attitude of our heart is correct, then the labor of our mind in questions of faith will honor God and will produce godly fruit. Which brings us to the other sort of question, the kind of question that Paul had to deal with, the kind of question that Paul answers so gruffly, who are you, O mortal, to answer back to God? The attitude and the motivation behind the questions put to Paul are very different from what we saw with Abraham. In this case, the unnamed questioner, perhaps you've been a person like this questioner at some point in your life. The unnamed questioner, right off the bat, assumes that God must be wrong, that God must be a scoundrel, that God can't be trusted. And why? Well, because God doesn't agree with me. And what God says won't turn out well for me. So he must be wrong because I can't possibly be wrong. I meet this kind of questioning all of the time. And it always comes from a position of superiority and privilege. From an attitude that says that what I think cannot possibly be wrong. Or what I desire cannot possibly be evil. It's a kind of questioning in which the questioner puts himself in the position of God. And demands that God answer his questions as if he, the questioner, is the judge of the world. Beware. I often encounter this kind of putting God on the stand with people who say things like, I can't believe in a God who, fill in the blank. As if the existence of God in any way depended on whether or not we believe in him or approve of him. God is God, and then He simply is who He is, and we can take it or leave it. The difference between the questions in Genesis and the questions in Romans is not a difference in logic or reason. Both of the questions and their supporting presuppositions and arguments are roughly equal. The difference lies in the condition of the heart of the questioner. Abraham questions God as a trusting, faithful supplicant. Paul's questioner questions God as God's superior and judge. The one works, and the other's a failure. I love questions. I have always been one to ask questions, but not all questions are equal. We've all been asked questions about ourselves by people who are curious to understand us, by people who want to know more about us, by people who are interested in us and in what we think. We've all been asked those kinds of questions, and we've all been asked questions by people whose minds are already made up, people who ask questions only to prove the point that they already believed, people who only ask questions in order to accuse us. Romans chapter 9 is thick with genuinely difficult questions. Questions about the relationship between time and eternity. Questions about the relationship between human freedom and God's sovereignty. Questions about the relationship between justice and mercy. We can approach those questions with... Open minds and open hearts, trusting that God is good and that what he says isn't crazy. Or we can approach those questions with our minds already made up. Using our questions to prove the opinion that we had before we began asking the question. We need to check the condition of our hearts. We need to check our motivations and our attitudes even as we are engaging our minds. The greatest commandment is this, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. May we all obey Jesus' command. May we enjoy the blessings of a deep and rich relationship with Almighty God who is happy to hear and to respond to our questions. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you and we recognize that you are Lord over all, that you are the one who made all things, that you made us, that you knew us before we saw the light of day, that you have plans for us, that you've given us affections, even as you've given us reason and a mind. Lord, I pray that we would be completely submitted to you. In our heart and in our soul and in our mind. And I pray that because of that, we might enjoy sweet, sweet fellowship with you today and forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.